Hello and welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we shine a light on people shaping the world of cybersecurity to find out what their journey has been like, what motivates them and what keeps them up at night still. Today I am delighted to be joined by Leanne Potter, an award-winning cyber anthropologist, security transformation leader with experience in retail, healthcare, finance, private and non-profit sectors. Leanne is also head of SecOps for the largest greenfield technology project in Europe, where she builds strategies to create sustainable security cultures throughout the organisation. So Leanne, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing really well, thank you. That's great. Uh, so you've got a really unique and fascinating background coming into security from a background of working with charitable organisations on diversity and social inclusion projects and into anthropology. So we're going to start off with the question that you must have been asked the, the most. What is a cyber anthropologist and how did you become one? Yeah, well, I started uh, life before I got into tech as a digital anthropologist. Um, I wanted to do anthropology for quite a long time. Um, my background was I was English literature major, um, but I, I really was fascinated by how cultures work, but in particular being someone who grew up with the internet, you know, have, not having the internet and then kind of growing up with it. I was really fascinated about online communities, mostly because I spent most of my teenage years on MSN Messenger and, and other sort of chat sites and things like that. So I, I wanted to do anthropology and anthropology is the study of culture um, and it's uh, how culture is developed, formed and sometimes collapses. Um, and I was seeing that, you know, technology was creating a different type of human culture that was um, at the same, you know, simultaneously disparate, but um, still having the same human connections that you would see. And maybe even for some people more so than they ever have experienced before, particularly those who have been sort of socially isolated. So I became fascinated with that. Um, and I started um, researching things like um, Second Life. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but it yeah, was, yeah. It's, it's before medicine. So you, you had your own sort of avatar and world and you could have shops and things and commerce and stuff. Uh, so I started seeing um, for my um, studies if the principles of uh, Marxist theory could be applied to Second Life. And if it would, you know, if we're still building like capital re replicating societies, we would see it um, in IRL. Uh, on those situations, and we totally were. We, we we were just moving everything we knew about being a human just to other um, platforms, virtual platforms. And to me, that was very fascinating. A lot more fascinating, I'll be honest. Then um, traditionally, uh, anthropologists like to go to far flung places. You know, you, you kind of think of your Indiana Jones, your sort of Tomb Raider kind of things like that. Uh, but I was really interested in in what was going on virtually. I specialized in that, and I actually managed to use that um as a job and i became a project manager for a charity and i was given a budget of five million pounds and i was told solve destitution in leeds which is where i'm based and i had no idea how i was going to go about doing that um but i kind of put the feelers out there and said uh, i've got this pot of money um if you hear of anyone in need please let me know and what i was seeing time and time again coming through our doors it was people's inability to access online services that were preventing them from getting out of destitution. Now, at the time, all of the sort of governmental ways you could get money, you know, so the benefit system, the housing system, had all moved online quite dramatically, and for good reason. Um, but what I was seeing is that the most vulnerable people in the society were not digital literate, and then they were really struggling with this change because they were going into the job centre, for example, and saying, I'm here to sign up, and just pointed to a bank of computers and said, go sort it out yourself. That's how it's done nowadays. And if you've never touched a computer before or, or had any kind of, have very low levels of understanding of how to use a computer, that'll just put you off. And I, I was seeing time and time again, people just literally turning around and just walking out. And then they would come into my service, you know, not eaten for days, about to be homeless or, have, or were homeless and things like that. And it was just very eye-opening to see um, the amount of digital divide which is what my sort of theory posited. And um, that's what I sort of submitted to um, the funders is like, this is what I'm seeing, the digital divide in action. And it's not what you think. Now, normally the people, uh, when they think about the digital divide, think about older people, sure, you know, elderly people, yeah. unable to access online services due to skills. Most of the, my clients were really young adults, you know, just come out of the care system. So aged um, sort of 17 to 18 is when you kind of, get removed from that system they've never had a computer before because you don't really have kind of stuff like that when you're in the care system so they were coming into the world not knowing how to use things like that but also people in around age 45 to 55 was also the other key demographic because we were seeing people who probably had you know 
you know, blue-collar jobs for, for quite a long time, then maybe got made redundant or something, and trying to find their way to, you know, find a new job and things like that. They've never had to use compute before, so it wasn't the people you would typically expect to be sort of digitally excluded. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. And I was really lucky that um, I was able to eventually move on to another role, which was when I started teaching myself how to code because I wanted to get really hands-on and how to influence technology decisions. And um, within about five months of teaching myself how to code using uh, free online resources, I became a software developer at NHS Digital. That's how I started my career and been applying my anthropology ever since. I think that's, that's a really fascinating way to get into to the, the industry. And your point around the digital divide, that really interests me because you're talking about that perception of it's the older generation. Actually, I think throughout COVID, my, my wife works in a school and we saw a lot of things where there were there were children from families where they were trying to do teams, remote teams lessons. And, you know, some families have the kids had a laptop and they sat down and did the things. Other families, they were trying to share a tablet or a, a phone between them to do those. And I think we probably, I don't know if you agree, but we've probably seen that digital divide continue to worsen for, for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, when, when COVID happened, it, it kind of put everything I've been discussing for the last, you know, three or four years um, on the digital divide kind of to full front because uh, I, I spent a lot of time sort of championing it's not who you think it is, it's so many other people. People just assume everyone's got a smartphone, everyone's got the internet. It, that sure. really is not the case. <clears throat> um, and, you know, Leeds is a, you know, quite a well-off city you know we've got really great industry here and i was just seeing time and time again people absolutely socially disadvantaged due to their inability to access online services so i was really keen that um, the, my sort of reason why i wanted to transition properly into tech um away from that sort of project management role was because i really wanted to influence those sort of technical decisions using anthropology yeah, and actually, one of the quotes that really jumped out for me when I was doing the research uh, for this interview was you had there was a quote that said, "When you follow the cables, behind every piece of tech is a person, consumer, creator, and we should never lose sight of this." Would you like to just explain Correct. what you mean by this and what the consequences are of losing sight of that human element when we're dealing with technology? Is well, yeah, and and I think it's very applicable as well to cybersecurity because, you know, we talk about. The technology so much that's always the the prominent things like you know maybe if we just get the technology right but at the end of the day computers and uh, the tools and systems that we're utilizing and, and thank goodness because we really need them there's so much stuff we just cannot physically as humans do anymore um and i really people always think oh you must be really against uh tools and things like that no i really love tools and technology i'm really glad it's there but everything you teach a tool or a computer is based on that human element is someone sitting there okay how am I going to configure this what inputs am I going to put into that and we need to kind of remember that all the way through the process and it's not just the fact that you know that configuration piece it's the processes behind it it's all the governance behind it and if you don't make them human friendly there'll always be places where heuristics will kick in and people take shortcuts um so you've got to be really mindful of that when we're dealing with technology not to separate yourself off from the actual tech it's the human element is completely woven through the entire thing. And you mentioned that you, you taught yourself coding in, would you say, five months in between learning it and getting a job coding? Yeah, yeah. So um, I tried learning how to code like a full-time job. So I spent all my evenings and weekends doing it. I uh, <laughs> lost total all my social life and everything. Um, I just really wanted to kind of get into this industry and kind of set myself a real sort of strong goal. And... I was really lucky at the time, so NHS Digital had a uh, graduate training scheme. Now, I was uh, probably one of the oldest ones to apply on there. Uh, it was an open scheme, so you could have um, passed with a, a graduate qualification at any point. So it didn't have to be within a few years or anything like that. So I applied, and I think it was because um, not only could I sort of demonstrate technically, I was, was able to do what I needed to do to, to get through the assessment, but I sold it to them. I said, look, you're creating products and services that are supposed to meet the needs of every single person in the UK. Um, so health tech, every single person in the UK, you need someone that understands culture to be able to do that. And that's how I sold it to them. That's a, a really nice approach there. Is there any um, resources that you'd recommend for people who are thinking that they'd like to go down a similar path? Yeah, well, I, I started with Free Code Camp. Um, there's some fantastic stuff on YouTube um, for Python and things like that. 
there's it just really depends on your learning style. I would definitely recommend try and keep as much hands on as possible. Um, when you are watching YouTube videos and stuff like that, follow along. Don't don't just passively take it in. It's definitely a hands on thing. Um, I really love the series uh, Automate the Boring stuff with the Python book. That's really fantastic as well and um, quite funny. And I would also recommend try and go to tech meetups as much as possible, like virtually or in person. It doesn't matter if it's to do with software development, cybersecurity, cloud or anything like that. In your initial stages, go to everything. And particularly if you're interested in getting into cybersecurity, really go to everything. Because what I say to people coming into this industry is, when I was a software developer, if I really wanted to, I could be a real specialist in, say, JavaScript or Python. I could really get my head down and I could really specialize in that. When you come into cybersecurity, because it touches everything, you know, every element of technology, you have to be kind of have your finger on the pulse of everything. So don't just go to cybersecurity conferences, go to um, software development conferences, go to cloud conferences, AI, everything, because eventually all those areas will touch your world if you work in cybersecurity. But that real thing, and I, I always say, find your tech tribe, which is, I'm so grateful, um, particularly for the, the leads. Uh, tech community that we have at the moment without them I, I don't know if I would have found it I don't think I would have got a job within five months I had those people there and they sort of cheered me on um gave me resources when I was stuck on coding issues they would help and things like that I think you need that kind of support network out there to really help you get to your goals yeah that, that find your tech tribe is is a lovely way of phrasing it that there's so many supportive groups out there and meetups and even if you don't understand the technology you're going to go and look at you'll probably take something away from it. You'll probably meet some people and become part of that community. Um, so yeah, what, what I really loved about it was like, um, you know, within a, like a couple of months of going, you'd hear acronyms and things like that. I'm like, oh, I'm starting to understand what that is. It's almost like learning by osmosis. Yeah. Um, there was many, and there still is. I still go to, you know, tech events. And I'm like, I have no clue what they're talking about. But, you know, you get to understand it eventually the more you hear about it. Um, and just kind of cut yourself a break as well when you're in that early stage. You're not going to know everything. And even people who've been at this for years and years don't know everything. So you're in good company. No, that's it. And that's the, the joy of the industry, right? There's always new things to learn there. Um, from your experience, then you say so you've, you've done your self-taught coding. You've got this job at NHS Digital. How did that start off? How was your first day at NHS Digital? It was a little strained, I have to admit. Um, so I did a lot of research when I decided um, to retrain for a career in tech. I mean, I even took a quite a substantial pay cut to do it as well. Um, so I was really investing into this. And I was really excited on my first day. So uh, being the excited person I was, I, I showed up really early. Um, my team wasn't in yet. That's how early I showed up. And I was the point to a bank of desk and like, like, your team sits here. So just, just wait quietly for them. Um, and I remember the office being really, really empty. Now, I'm just a wee diddy person here. Um, so if I sit behind a monitor, you will not see me. And I remember just being sort of sat behind this this big bank of monitors. And I was listening to someone who had just come in. And they didn't know I was there. And they were talking to someone. And they said, oh, do you know why they've hired a lot of women lately, don't you? And then the person was like, oh, why? Oh, uh, for diversity numbers. And that was just such a gut punch. Mm. I'd, I'd worked so you know, hard. I'd sacrificed so much to, to kind of get into this role and to hear that. I rightly or wrongly kind of assumed that when I read about sort of like tech bro culture, that was an American thing. Um, I really didn't expect to sort of see it in the UK. But um, that was what happened. And I think had I been, you know, straight out of uni or something or a bit younger, um, so I was in my 30s at the time, I probably would have just sort of sat there, internalized it, put my head down. But being being a, a little bit older, a little bit wiser, as soon as my boss came in, he said, oh, great, lovely to meet you. How's things going? I said, oh, great, actually. I then um, pulled him aside and told him all about it. And uh, that, that matter was dealt with quite quickly and quite swiftly. Um, but I'm actually nowadays really thankful for that experience. Uh, I remember going home that night and uh, telling my husband about what happened and thinking I'm never going to let that happen to anyone else again um, I'm going to call out that behaviour wherever I see it um, I'm going to share my story of how I got into tech as much as possible um, mentor people I'm just going to make sure that I'm going to really try and change perceptions of the tech industry for not just women but um, so I'm from a, 
very working class background as well. Um, I'm the first one to go to university in my family um, and things like that. Diversity with a capital D includes everyone, not just women. So I'm very keen on making sure that people are well represented in tech. And again, going back to anthropology, it's important to do so because we're creating products and services for such a vast array of different cultural experiences, backgrounds. We need different people to really add flavor and understanding to what the human experience is. It can't just be my perception of my own human experience because that'll be totally different to yours, be totally different to Sarah down the road, it'll be totally different to Brian down the road. Like We need to take account for all this to make the products and services the very best they possibly can be. Absolutely. And it's those kind of things that often fly under the radar. You know, there's, I know there's been a lot of research in recent years around women's healthcare outcomes when it comes to heart attacks or how women are more likely to be injured in car accidents because it was designed by men for men or by a social group for a social social group and all these kind of problems that exist. And in technology, it might not always be immediately obvious, but then as we sort of move into this age of AI and machine learning, that these biases are being trained into algorithms and becoming more and more dominant in our lives potentially there what do you think we should be doing as an industry to to make this better yeah well well, a lot of it, it's it most of it isn't out and out malicious you know it's not sure people coming into work going i'm going to exclude all these people or i'm going to give these people a really bad time a lot, a lot of it's just like you say people just don't take that into account because that's not their lived experience which is why you need to bring other people's stories and narratives and lived experiences you know, to everyone else's awareness. You know, I think um, I was reading about um, oh gosh, I can't remember her name, but she she works she worked at um Facebook. She was the uh, chief operations officer. Um, she wrote Lean In. She wrote that book. Um, and she was saying um when she became pregnant, she was one of the first people in like senior positions to become pregnant in Facebook. Um, and her car parking space was really really far away. And um, it wasn't the fact that they'd just be like, oh, well, I don't care if you're pregnant, you're going to have to just walk. It's just that nobody considered the fact that a pregnant staff might need to park closer to the building. And, you know, it was just about just having those understandings and awareness. Um, but why wait for something to happen before you can really act on it? And I think we could do better in just kind of considering people viewpoints and perspectives by just being that little bit more mindful um bit being a bit more proactive rather than reactive and you're only going to get that is if you have an environment where people can share things with you as well because we as humans um all want to fit in that's you know it's a survival mechanism and so you need to make sure that when you do sort of build your diverse culture um which i hope everyone really is aiming for that People can, I think the phrase, you know, bringing your, your, your true self to work is very cheesy, but mm. there is something in that about, you know, you can very quickly lose your sense of self just to fit into the crowd. So if you are, say, the only woman in a team, you adapt quickly and you, you go, okay, right, I'm just going to act like the rest of the group. You know, that, that sort of, um, you know, majority rule situation. Yeah. Um, and so you change yourself. And so you lose that benefit of having that one say woman in that team because you've not created an environment where that person can just be themselves and so you need to just be really careful of the fact that just because you've got representation um how do you make sure that you're getting the best value out of that rep- representation rather than just a numbers game yeah um was it Cheryl sandberg you were referencing that's it cool so actually, this this brings us on to something I was talking um, with some friends about recently, which was the the concept of imposter syndrome. And I was talking with someone, mm. and they were arguing that actually, it's a it's derived from a an experience in the workplace from a bad culture in a workplace. It's not a pathology. We call it a syndrome, but it's not something you know that people are, are you're you're born with this. And uh, mm. I think there was some an article in the Harvard Business Review that talking about imposter syndrome directs our view towards fixing women at work rather than fixing the work places where women are working. I, I, didn't, I don't know what your take on imposter syndrome is and, and how that fits into the, the problem. I'm really pleased people talk about it more. Um, but I get asked about imposter syndrome as if 
you get to a certain level in your career, you stop having it. You get you get to a certain um, level, a certain age, you stop having it. And and um, and there is like a woman's condition, which you know I I speak to um, you know my other half is a, a CTO, um, and he just gets just as much imposter syndrome as anyone else. Um, but in terms of your question is, is that relevant if it's always trying to fix things? I think it's it's relevant in, in terms of we need to keep having those conversations and I'm always really happy to kind of dispel myths that it's it's something that once you're, you know, relatively successful, which I, you know, I, w- I would definitely consider my career being a success so far, that that goes away. But what I think you are right in, in sort of pointing out with that article is that a lot of it is about, oh, well, you need to stand up for yourself. And I think that's where I took a little bit of issue with this year's International Women's Day. Now, I'm a big supporter of International Women's Day. I think we should have it. But I think the theme for this year, um, particularly the imagery that was used for this year, didn't quite sit right with me. Um, the kind of sort of self-hug kind of, you know, it's... It, to me, it sort of indicated that maybe we were placing a little bit of blame um, on, you know, women's self actualization You know, you know, if you stood up for yourself more, you would get that promotion. If you if you kind of was more of a go-getter, you would get that promotion and things like that. And I think we need to be more aware of actually how different people work. Yeah. Not just women, just everyone, how different people work and, and what their sort of ways of self actualization is because um, it does differ from person to person you know that there's um there is a reason why you know throughout human history you know we've said there's the alpha you know the person who's in charge of the group and things like that we haven't really lost that mentality and maybe that's because maybe we do need that kind of situation but i think if we look at the way culture is organizing itself lately because we've become more self-aware um, about larger groups because you've got to think you know it's it's only in relatively recent history and I mean really well to relative recent history there's there was a lady uh, my my neighbor for example um unfortunately she passed away recently she'd lived um in that house since her childhood she had hardly ever left the postcode you know, this this is recent. This is recent living memory. We've lived in really small communities, but now we've got all this information to our hands. You know, we, I, I can talk to anyone in the world right now. I can learn about anyone's local news right now. If you just point me to 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 a an address, I can find out everything there is going on in that area. That awareness piece will that change the way we need to kind of govern ourselves in groups and in leadership positions? Does it make us more self aware? And I think potentially it could do we're thinking about that from a digital anthropologist point of view yeah your point as well around that kind of we have these fixed concepts of what leadership is like and it's often you know the Mm -hmm. confidence which doesn't necessarily mean competence a lot of the time you know you can be ultra confident Mm -hmm. and not be very good at your job um but there's a lot of things you know you started off saying you know you came from kind of a a working class background in the north of england uh, being female and actually a lot of the time people start talking about imposter syndrome as they're crossing those perceived social boundaries so suddenly you're in a male dominated boardroom or something like that and then this label of imposter syndrome comes to be when actually the problem is not you feeling being imposter the problem is that the system is set up in that way so I just think it's a really fascinating area and when people talk about imposter syndrome whether they're they're blaming themselves too much and not thinking about the, the systems that are in place that are causing them to feel that way well, yeah, very much so. So, take take case in point. The, my my first day in tech, you know, I was really excited about being there. My imposter syndrome wasn't the fact that I didn't feel like I belonged there. My imposter syndrome was like I got to learn a lot to kind of be where I am, and that would be the same for any new job. It wasn't the fact that I was coming into tech; it was just a new job butterflies. But it was only I I do think yeah, my my imposter syndrome probably did increase the more people pointed out and like you're a woman in tech. The more people point that because I've worked in industries where it was 50-50 gender splits um, and things like that. So I, I, previous to working in tech, my understanding of how the world, the work, the way the world works in terms of the workplace, has always been a sort of normal kind of homogeneity of different races, cultures, genders, and things like that. It was only until I got into tech where it is a lot different that that kind of came out. Um, 
Yeah, so that's it's an interesting point. Yeah, so getting back on topic, because I know we've, we've sort of gone off on a, on a tangent there, but the see so you're at NHS Digital, rough first day, but it gets resolved. You, you sort of get on. Mm -hmm. How did you then transition into more of a, a security focus there? Yeah, so um, I loved doing software development, um, but what I was really starting to see is I had to engage a lot with security teams. Now, that was, you know, things like, you know, we'd, we'd uh, have pen tests come out and then they would send us the results and things like that. And what I became fascinated with was um, it was so siloed. And again, putting my anthropologist hat on, I was like, I need to see why this culture is so siloed. And so I became sort of fascinated with the work security were doing. And I would constantly put my hand up to do the security tasks that nobody wanted to do with in, in the, the software development team. That's a very easy thing to do. If you're uh, if you are a developer and you want to get into security, just do the jobs that nobody else wants to do, which is usually security. Um, so I did get all the, the security jobs and that got me really great exposure and understanding about risks and um, vulnerabilities and eventually exposure to that wider team. Um, and after about a year of constantly begging and asking if I could join them, um, they finally let me in. And it, it was that kind of instant sort of fascination piece of, the work they were doing and what struck me is again like other silos but in particular with the, the sort of security team silo is we had so many requirements that we needed from the rest of the business but nobody wanted to engage with us and you know as an anthropologist that's so interesting that you've got this almost isolated culture that nobody wants to engage with um, and that you actually need results and you know you're part of a bigger machine now I, I remind people that, you know, organizations literally are their own microculture. You know, you go into work, you sign in along with, you know, hundreds of other people at 9 a.m. on a morning, on a Monday morning. That's a cultural event. That that really is. If, if you saw animals doing that, you'd say that's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. But put it in a perspective of humans, that is a cultural event. And work is is a culture, you know. It might not be a be on ever and everything, you know, because family comes first and things like that. But it is something really unique to the human experience and you know we shouldn't kind of downplay the importance of that and so to see a team just not engage not being engaged with or being able to engage outwards was really interesting to me so I became fascinated how do we communicate better with the rest of the business um, and then that's when the cyber anthropologist was born that's fantastic what why what is it about company cultures because this is if you think at a very simplistic level, you'd think, okay, you've got this company, like you say, everyone comes in, we all wear the lanyards, we all log in, we have a shared identity, we wave at each other at the bus stop if we see each other as a, or we're all part of this team. Mm -hmm. And you'd think, okay, cybersecurity, you've got a, a common enemy there. Nobody wants to, you know, their work to disappear, their things to disappear. Yet when it comes to security culture in an organization, it's often IT or the security team versus the rest of the organization. Why do you think from an anthropologist perspective, we end up in these cultural silos internally? I think it's historical quite a lot of it um we've had to be very self-preservationist um up until very recently you know we've had to do everything very manually we've had to have oversight over everything there is to know in the business we've had no kind of support in that area we've traditionally and probably quite a lot of people uh, listen to this podcast as like we still are the most underfunded unloved area of the business you know we are not a revenue generating part of the business which is always a very hard sell um, we don't do very well at explaining value now most businesses their aim is to create value uh, either for profit or for other altruistic reasons um, you can't prove that kind of negative it's really difficult for us to articulate that and because we've had this historical need to be self-preservationist we've had to say no to a lot of things that's kind of continued out throughout um, as our industry has been developed and it's been a real hard image to shake off I always say that security teams really need a PR person behind them first and foremost and when I sort of do my work as a cyber anthropologist you know people say I want to talk better with it you know I want I want people to engage with security better and the first thing I say is well we start with the security team there's no point going out there engaging with the rest of the business until you're in a really good stead you're able to understand what what your values and goals are what do you want to achieve and what are you willing to give up as well because it is about 
uh, give and take. And one of the main principles of anthropology is um, a concept known as reciprocity. And reciprocity is the give and take of gifts. Now, gifts can either be literal, you know, everyone appreciates like a little chocolate bar or a pack of crisps or something like that when, when for a favour. But in a work context, that's things like shows of tokens of support. That's things like loosening up controls to make their jobs easier. And we have that very much in our gift because quite a lot of the controls we've put in place, um, especially in a well-established organisation, are historical controls. Controls we put in at that time when we didn't have the resources we had, so we didn't have the tools in place to, to that now um, automate those those roles and uh, sorry those uh, tasks and things like that. We didn't have those in place. You know, it's the fact that you know we had to say no to a lot of things. It's very much in our gift to review those controls and say, actually, you know, why did we shut off um, one organisation I worked at? Why did we shut off Bluetooth because we thought that people were going to exfiltrate data? Well, our devs now can't listen to music uh, on their headphones because we've disconnected Bluetooth. Makes them less productive, also annoys them. Um, why, why don't we just give those um, tokens, um, gifts of support? And what you find with reciprocity is, and this is the nice thing about it, is that when you give even small gifts, there is a need, an inherent need, and this is throughout history, throughout human culture, to reciprocate. But not only just to reciprocate, to over-reciprocate. Now, now the um, example I give is, you know when your partner buys you a really nice birthday present? Really thoughtful, unique, you know, almost brings tears to your eyes. It's so lovely. I'm going to point at my Lego your behind me. Your first thought is, exactly, your first thought is, that's really nice. Your second thought is, how am I going to beat it for their birthday next? That's your second thought. It's always about almost outdoing people when it comes to reciprocity. And if you can develop a culture where you've got that reciprocal relationship, you'll just keep trying to help each other out. And that's how you build up um, strong security culture. That's how you can build up engagement with the rest of the business. But you need to make the first move. And we're not very good at doing that. that that's, that's really good advice because the common thing I come across time and time again when talking to people is, oh, we put this control in place, but we're having all these problems because people are working around it. We've got these shadow accounts appearing. We've got these systems that disappear every time we do a vulnerability scan. All these kind of problems that exist, but it's because the business feels that the security team is just stopping them from being productive. The security team thinks they're doing their job, and it's it's that understanding, you know, it's, it's the common thing of the security team saying, sitting in, you know, the notion of the, the tower that they sit in, saying, don't do these things, and the users are idiots for clicking those links, and they don't understand security. But often the security team perhaps don't understand the needs of the business and the users there. So a bit of give and take, like you're saying. We hardly ever, we hardly ever consult. When we put these controls in place, we hardly ever consult with, with, with the end user. We need to start thinking more like user researchers. So maybe if you can't hire yeah. anthropologists, um, do recommend it though. If you can't hire anthropologists in your organization, speak to your user researcher team. When you're thinking about putting in things that will have a consequence, I'm talking like a business consequence, you know, as small as that example with the headphones is, actually, the business wants those developers to be really productive. They want those developers to be happy because, again, they're the revenue generating. They're the ones paying my, my wages. So I want them to be productive as well. Think about when you're putting controls in place. You can get um, really great advice with user researchers, like ask the right questions about how that process is going to affect them. Show a bit of compromise. Now... I've seen time and time again that where this has worked really successfully is when you give people autonomy as well in that process. Now, when you start putting a control in place, if you have that engagement where people feel like they have the psychological safety to raise things with you, they're going to want to be more accountable. Now, accountability, you know, on that racy sheet is really important for security because, again, going back to that underfunded, under-resourced section of the business, you need other people to have eyes on processes because you can't have eyes on everything. And you can only do that if people feel like that, you know, accountability, you know, on the dotted line is basically putting your hand up and saying, eventually I'm going to be blamed for something because that's what accountability is. Yep. But there's different types of blame. You will never be punished for thinking, I've made a decision based on the best information I have possible and my understanding, or you shouldn't be. You're in, you're in the wrong organization if that's not the case. But you need to be able to justify your actions when you're accountable. 
And you can only do so if you've got psychological safety in place to be able to do that. And you can only really have that if your security team is there supporting you with those security decisions as well. And giving you that opportunity to be able to put your hand up going, maybe I don't understand this or maybe you need to um, query how something's done because it just doesn't fit into the reality of your day-to-day job. But seldom security teams do that. And so that's what I really try and encourage. Yeah, it's, it's really reminded me of the Peter Drucker quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast. So you can have the, the best security mm-hmm. strategy in the world, but if you don't have the culture to buy into that in the organization, then it, it's, it's going to be trashed by that and you're going to end up blaming the users and you're still going to be this under-resourced team without the buy-in of, of the wider culture and the company. So that's a, a really refreshing take on it, actually. It's something we don't see in this industry nearly enough. Was it that experience that then led you to found the uh, AnthroSecurist consultancy firm? Yeah, um, I, I was just getting lots of requests and, to, and asked um, about how does how do you actually apply this anthropology thing? Because I think people are definitely more open-minded to it these days, um, particularly with the sort of boom in behavioral science, um, which I'm very keen on as well, so nudge theory and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a lot of uh, UK government is um, utilising behavioral science to to really great effect and anthropology can you know a really great bedfellows into that so you know i do apply quite a lot of um behavioral science uh, alongside uh, the anthrosecurist work but for me it's about understanding why security teams are the way they are which is the main thing you know i i get brought on to to talk about this in conferences and and things like that like you know how do we use anthropology to make our security culture better and people are expecting it's all about changing the individuals that work there. I'm like, no, it's about changing you guys, you guys that are all sat in, in, in the uh, conference listening to me. Because it, as again, going back to my point that I've sort of labored on now is it all starts with the security team, whether you like it or not. You set the tone of how security is in your organization. People sometimes say, well, it's, it's tone from the top. In a way it is. But if, if I go to a CEO that's not a security specialist, how are they going to set the tone from the top apart from the fact that, yeah, I don't want a scandal. I don't want to lose customer data. I don't want to be breached. Those kind of very bare bones, you know, kind of standard wants and needs that you'd expect from any business. But how do you set the tone as a security team for the culture in your um, organization? You set it by how do you want people to approach you? If you want to create a culture of fear, Fear, uncertainty, and doubt, you know, FUD, you go ahead. But um, studies have shown that that does not work effectively. And and when it does work, it's only short-term gains. And eventually, everyone will put their heads in the sand. No one will come to you. And you need every single eye available. And that's when that sort of tribe mentality comes in. That's when you have to use techniques such as storytelling, making it relatable to a wider variety of audiences taking that all the way through to your security team, making sure that you're well-represented in different experiences, creating that diverse team. And your work there is that you've got the Anthro Securist Consultancy and you're also the head of SecOps. So does, does for a separate organization, does the, do the two complement each other? Do you get to kind of further study the, the impacts of some of the things you're talking about uh, in the real world? Is it, is it a bit of a lab environment for you to be able to test things out? Yeah, well, every organization has been a lab environment and that's um, that's kind of the anthropologist's way. Yeah. Um, the, the idea behind um, one of the sort of main principles of anthropological fieldwork is something called participant observation. Um, and what you do with participant observation is not just mere observing. The, the participant part of participant observation is very crucial. You shed yourself you become part of that culture you have to fully embrace that um some some anthropologists say you completely lose your own identity and become a part of that culture um so historically it's been you know people going off to uh far out tribes and and becoming part of that culture and things like that but you can definitely apply that those principles of uh, participant observation at any level you know you don't even need to be an anthropologist to do that because humans love people taking an interest in them so whenever you go um, and want an understanding of maybe a team that you maybe have not had the best relationship with, um, you can go out there and, and say, look, I'm here to learn. I'm here to really understand what your experiences are like. 
And you don't come at it from a security person's perspective. You come at it from an anthropologist's perspective, which is to say you come with it very open-minded, very open-hearted, ready to hear what's said and what's not being said because that you learn so much more from what's not being said. And what I found um, when I've sort of done this piece of work is it's actually not just traditionally, oh, well, security doesn't talk to the rest of the business, you know, um, nobody wants to talk to them, that kind of back and forth thing. People in other areas of the business don't want to talk to other areas of the business either. And so you see these areas where the communication laps. You know, for example, maybe the engineering team have a really poor relationship with the cloud team, for example. And you wouldn't know that unless you actually said, right, I'm going to spend a good few weeks with you. You know, if you've got that luxury or even just a week, even just a few days. But understanding actually where are everyone else's pain points will give you a richer understanding of where are the kind of gray areas or the things I'm going to kind of um, be sidelined from when I'm trying to build the security culture. It's not just the fact that they won't talk to me but they're also really struggling to talk to each other in other areas of the business. It's just that developed understanding. And eventually when people forget that you're a security person, um, one of the kind of nice knock-on effects is I've often become a security confessor. And so people, what they do is, um, it's a bit like coming to confession, is all of a sudden, um, after a few weeks, people open the floodgates and they forget that I'm part of the security team and they'll just tell me about their security misdemeanors. And that's great. And you have to accept that kind of sharing, very um, open-hearted and collaboratively and don't chastise people. You know, it's great to have this information. Um, they say uh, sinners make the best saints. And um, I think that's very true because you can't fix what you don't know about. And so any intel you can get is crucial. Um, I, I always say I get more information from um, the developers themselves and from our pen test report because that's what I need to know about. I need to know about like what's making your job really difficult to be secure because nobody comes into work, mostly, um, you know, unless those odd outliers that come in to do a malicious job, nobody comes in to bring down a company. Yeah, People come to work to do a good job, you know, and you need to be mindful of that. It's this whole thing about really chastising people. It just doesn't work. You need to make sure that you're building a culture that supports and develops and grows along with you. And obviously you're coming at that from the anthropologist, the people side of things. But one of the interesting things I've heard you talk about in the past is, as well as coming out from the people side of things, you're also very passionate about giving people the right tools to be able to make their lives better. And how do you marry the, the, the human side of it with the tech and the tools effectively? Yeah, so so one thing I'm I'm very grateful for that I've managed to do in my career is, is keep the technical side up. Um, I was very lucky that um, when I taught myself how to code, um, I picked up relatively quickly. I I don't know why. Um, I've I've no sort of science behind that, and um, technological concepts I seem to pick up very quickly, and uh, and things like that. I'm just I'm just lucky in that sense. But I do feel like it makes me a better anthropologist for understanding the the need to have um, tech to be able as an enabler um, because technology will take us so far. Um, and I know lots of people are worried about, you know, tech, how much it'll um, take away from people doing actual jobs, but there'll always be a need for, for human beings, even with AI. Um, and I've been sort of playing around a lot with that at the moment, uh, just like everyone else has. I don't want to bore your listeners with more AI talk, but... Even with things like that, there, there'll always be a need for that sort of human element. And you need to think, actually, what can I use technology for to be able to free people to do the things that um, technology can't do as well as humans? Um, and to this point at the moment, I don't think there is too much for us to be worried about. Famous last words. Uh, but there, there is definitely a need to make sure that like like we did, you know, in our sort of ancient history, we were always looking for the best ways to make things more efficient. Human beings are incredibly lazy. And it's that's we have to be because 
to not be lazy expels a lot of effort, a lot of energy. And when a threat happens, if you're really exhausted, you're not going to be able to run away from that lion. Um, so we need to find workarounds, things that make it easy for us. I see tech as just enabling to do that so that when, for example, a big security incident happens, we're much more focused, aware and alert yeah. to be able to respond to it. That's where tech and technology and tools really are important. It's it's not about replacing the human element. It's about making us more efficient because we're inherently lazy and we need to be able to fight threats and be ready for them. That's a really nice way of putting it because some people often they get obsessed with the idea of we need to collect more data, we need more signals, we need more security tools, raising events, and they forget that this is just more noise to drown the limited you know team with a limited pool of resources in. And actually, what are the things we can do to make that more efficient to tease out the signals that matter the most, to prioritize things and allow people to, to focus and ultimately feel like they can achieve something in their job? Well, that's it. So when you think about sort of security monitoring, for example, setting up scene solutions, um, I've been very privileged to do that in a couple of organizations. Um, that initial period where there's so much noise. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm constantly reminding people it's not just the facts, you know, you have to put in this stuff. It's about all the noise you have to deal with too. And then it's the life cycle of that um, rule set, for example, that, that alerting rule set you have to consider. And if you're creating an environment where you've just got so much noise, that's high stress. That's high stress. And then that effort and energy that you could be focusing on um, or I guess reserving for when something really does bad happen, you're spent. And that's why I think you see a lot of burnout in our industry is because we aren't using the tech and the tooling right. We're, we're treating it in two senses. One, like a silver bullet. Like, you know, like you say, if we just keep buying more tools, we'll be more safe. But if we're not using them properly, we're expelling effort. And that expelling effort causes us to be burnt out, to be constantly tired, um, which then leads to us not being sharp and ready for when a security incident happens. The ideal situation, and I don't think many organizations do this, and I don't claim that, any organizations I've ever worked at have ever done this 100%, is that your tooling frees you up to be able to do things like tabletop exercises really regularly because you've got that good data set. You've got that good understanding of what good looks like in your environment. So you can be agile and ready because it's about muscle memory as well. Now, you know, you, you look at um, chimpanzees working with tools, for example, you know, they see their handlers playing around with tools and they just watch okay that's how it's done i'm able to do that with muscle memory you kind of need that you know we work on the same principles you know it's all about teaching learning and getting to a really good position where we can just do this stuff and if we rely on the tooling too much because we're not utilizing it properly again that's when that stress and burnout comes in and you mentioned that the role of the anthropologist being embedded in teams kind of get, getting rid of your own sort of biases and and you know your own social background just to be embedded within them one of the things i saw that you do in your your free time is improv and stand-up which i assume or i believe you're going into stand-up you, you currently do improv but you're going in stand-up so d does that help with that kind of being part of a team assuming a different role blending in yeah i i love improv um so i I'm part of an improv troupe called Roll With It. Um, it's, it's an improv troupe for nerds because uh, we're very uh, board game based and uh, Dungeons and Dragons based. So it's a kind of silly comedy around uh, all things geeky and nerdy like that. Um, the pr main principles of improv is a concept known as yes and. And I've been trying to kind of go around uh, in my sort of more recent talks on sort of cybersecurity and um, and team meetings i've been driving my team mad to be honest with uh, saying let's do some improv um uh, it's not an idea of, idea of everyone's uh, best day to spend but the principle of yes and is when you're doing a scene with someone you need to be you you and your scene partner need to be open to each other's suggestions and the idea behind improv and the reason why i like it um because I was, I was originally considering doing stand-up first, but I decided to, do, to practice improv. What I like about improv is, one, it's about collaboration. So you've got, you know, a couple of people on, on stage with you doing a scene or maybe another person. Does that? It's not just you stood up delivering something. It's, you know, it's, it's part of that sort of uh, creative process together. 
But also, improv is about making the other person look good. So there's no ego in place. Um, and when I was doing my sort of first lessons, so to say, I, I do gigs now, but when I was doing my first lessons, I just remember the tutor constantly saying, don't try to be funny. And which is weird because you think improv, improv comedy, you're supposed to be funny because I grew up with things like whose line is it anyways and stuff like that. And don't be funny, just make the other person look good. And yes, and really plays into that. So you would start a scene, for example, and so this is this is a scene done badly. You know, you and your scene partner come on, and you'd say, "I can't believe you ate that cake." And the other person goes, "No, I didn't." And then you kind of like, "Oh, where's this scene going to go then?" It kind of kills the conversation dead. Now the principles of yes and was you'd come into that scene and say, "I can't believe you ate that cake," and you go, "Yes, and I can't believe you did this." And then the scene builds and builds and builds, and hopefully to a silly conclusion. And that can be that principle of yes and. It's definitely something not only in cybersecurity, we can just use in, in life in general as being receptive and going, yes and. Because particularly, you know, in a, in a world where, you know, we kind of deal in, in no. I've, I've heard uh, team security teams being called like the Department of Work Prevention um, and <laughs> things like that. And it's, it's very easy to be like, just no. Again, yeah. the back to that self-preservationist argument. But if we think, yes, and we could book, you know, yes, and or maybe let's do it this way, it can really help us. So I, I think um, improv has fantastic uses um, to really sort of free a person up to be more sprightly on their feet. And there's definitely improv games you can play as well that, that sort of really help you with that feeling of I, I can play a scene and just be really receptive to wherever that scene takes me. And there is a lot to be said about what's known as functional fixedness. And now functional fixedness, I can barely say it, but functional fixedness is a thing that they've studied in the lab and you can actually see it on brain scans. Now, functional fixedness is where you see, you know, in the sort of layman's term, um, you have a nail, you see, see every tool as a hammer. And it's about actually how do you use your resources around you, the tools around you in different ways um, to to kind of get the best out of things, people and, and your resources that you have. And because our resources in any any area of the business and particularly nowadays with, with quite a lot of um, strange bu strained budgets with the cost of living uh, crisis and things like that, we, we need to do more with less. We, we definitely need that kind of make do amend mentality going forward. And I think improv can really help that in terms of starting conversations that way, like breaking out of that functional fixedness, which I can't say properly. <laughs> um, but it, it can really um, help us um, flex that grey matter a bit. Yeah. I... Because it, it can cause us to be very shut off to any new ideas. And as soon as, you know, the security team stops becoming aware of new ideas, we're not going to be able to protect our organizations. I'd never considered before, actually, the thing you were saying there about making the other person look good in improv, which kind of forces you to think of whatever words I say now, I have to anticipate what emotions that's going to elicit in the other person. Is that going to give them no room to respond? Are they going to feel backed into a corner? Or am I going to give them the freedom to start a discussion and come back to me and you know make the most out of this, which is a really valuable lesson, like you say, in communicating security mm -hmm. things, of not just saying no to people, because it's often perceived as the security team think they're smarter or they know more or that they just have some sort of godlike authority within the organization. And to your point, the kind of ministry of no or whatever they get labeled as mm -hmm. is often a result of that thinking and that mentality and thinking about your your impact on other people. Uh, so I, I think that's a really lovely, lovely thing to be doing. And uh, where can people find you, by the way, if they want to come and see your improv group i'm assuming you're performing around leeds yeah um we we're gonna have a sort of facebook page coming out soon um but i'm actually performing this uh sunday it's probably probably be all done and dusted by the time this podcast comes out um but we can be found quite often in a place called terminus in meanwood um if people want to sort of check out the the listings of that that um very nice little bar there so Excellent. Well, I encourage people to, to come along and have a go and later in the year, keep an eye out for your potential stand-up as well there. 
We are running low on time now, but I just wanted to squeeze in some other things because you do so many different projects. So maybe you could tell us about your healthcare startup. Yeah. Um, so back, um, it was, yeah, just at the very start of lockdown, I had been mentoring um, a pharmacist um, just before lockdown um, who wanted to get into tech. And we were, we were talking about things and um, as that sort of, relationship developed and what became really obvious is that we were really interested in healthcare outcomes and, and using technology to make people's lives easier and one area in particular we were focusing on was um, the menopause and so we started the process of creating a menopause app and the reason why that came about was was twofold um, one was we were very inspired by the experiences our mothers had had um, so I'd seen my mum kind of suffer through it um, because traditionally GPs just don't take it very seriously. Um, it's something that affects half the UK population at some point, like a, almost like a guarantee. Uh, and yet it's not part of their sort of core curriculum, really. It's, it's usually like a yeah. spoken to GPs. It's usually like a day course throughout their entire um, medical uh, training and things like that. And considering it has such massive impact on uh, people's quality of life um, in terms of um, physically, so it impacts your bones, um, there's memory fog, uh, mental health, things like that, has impact on your relationships. You know, if you don't really know what's going on and um, you're not supported, I've, I've heard of couples breaking up over, over the menopause and not realizing that was the cause, um, people leaving the the world of work as well. Uh, when I was doing focus groups, um, every single woman that I spoke to wanted to leave their position. They were all senior people in their organization. So I was seeing this as potential sort of time bomb for like um, a big leadership drop-off, female leadership drop-off. You know, we don't, we don't really talk about that being an impact as well. And so we were, we were really inspired by, you know, how do we make those outcomes better, but also better for health practitioners as well. And it's not like understanding because there was a lot of, information gathering that needed to happen up front so we had an idea to create an app that would do all that initial information gathering um you know we had no aspirations to sort of sell data or anything it was literally kind of very altruistic we just really wanted just to sort of plug that gap um and so that was a really interesting project to work on and particularly because um the my co-founder was a pharmacist as well there was that kind of connection of like how, how do we get that kind of clinician side involved so it was it's definitely trying to bridge that gap between the the patient and the clinician and that that whole journey and making just people feel heard that was mostly what we were trying to win from that outcome was was people just want to be heard and um, people always want to be heard you know when we, we've, we've touched upon this throughout this uh, conversation we've had is is communication is about actually waiting for someone to say oh i, I get it i get why that this this your day job is so difficult and that's why you're not following my controls and processes. It's the similar sort of thing. People just want to be recognized and, and understood what their day looks like. Um, so I, I was very sort of privileged to be a part of that. That's a, a fantastic project. And where, where can people find out more information about those projects that you're doing, your um, anthrosecurist consultancy and some of the other activities you get involved in? Yeah, best place to find out about stuff like that is uh, LinkedIn. Um, I, I post about any talks I'm doing, um, my articles are on there, things like that. Um, if you look up Leanne Potter on YouTube, there's just loads of stuff on there as well. So um, about how you use anthropology, uh, health tech, um, all that shebang. And um, at the moment, we're currently, um, me and my other half, I'd say he's the CTO, we are doing a sort of tour around the talk we're doing at the moment about product security. Um, my other half has this huge technology library. I've never seen so many technology books, uh, not even in a bookshop. And we were just sat there one night and we were going through it. And most of his are based on software development and product. Um, and we were going through them and security was mentioned either as a paragraph in most of these books or not at all. So we decided to, uh, one, make a podcast about product security and also start writing a book about that. So that's coming out soon fantastic well we'll make sure we keep an eye out for that one well thank you very much for your time here today leanne really appreciate you joining us i think it's been really refreshing to see this anthropological 
perspective on security, but not just security, actually, you've talked about wider social issues there. And I think there's been some just fantastic things for people to go away and think about in their careers and their practices uh, within their organization. So hopefully people will be looking for your content on YouTube, which there's, like you say, there's lots of it. And it's great because I had really a lot of enjoyment researching uh, for this interview. So thank you for putting all that content out there. Uh, hoping to see the improv troupe on stand-up comedy at some point. And as always, thank you to super producer Ben and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. Uh, I'm James Maud. This has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it. 